Welcome to Maestro's On Air. Today's show was recorded at the Space Coast Symphony's headquarters in Cocoa, Florida. With us today, the maestro himself, Aaron Collins. Plus, special guest, visiting from Israel, featured violinist, Daniel Lazkarov. And now, as always, your host, SCSO Director of Communications, Bill Trudeau. Oh, good morning, everybody. This is Bill Trudeau, um, host of the show, here with Aaron Collins this morning and a special guest, Daniel Ascroft. Hey. Hey, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Don't you start the show off with... Top of the morning to you? Yeah. Not all the time. Okay, that's not... I like, a... I like changing it up every once in a while. Okay, and you did it today. Yeah. Hi. Because I think today's a special occasion. I think uh, it's really a good thing to have Daniel back. Yeah. Um, we interviewed you, what was it, last year, or was it in January? It, it was in December, end huh. of December. December. Okay, that's right. December 28th. You're right. Yeah. Over at the International Palms. That mm-hmm. was a fun interview. And uh, the piece that you played, I listened back to that occasionally, and I still cannot believe how uh, brilliant you played that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. What, what was it? A Paganini, Paganini variation? Yeah, the oh, Paganini okay. variation I played yesterday. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. And it, I mean, it sounded great. It sounded just like you were in a studio, the quality. Um, but the way that you play it, anyway, I understand you're going to be playing something for us today. We look forward to that. Yeah, we'll play something. Beautiful. Um, I hope you will like it as well. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> we will. It's something different. I'm sure we will. I have some questions for you. I know Aaron does. And um, you, you want to wipe off the slobber off your face? <laughs> you want to? You, <laughs> you're oakling a little bit. Yes, I yes, like it. I think I will. I like it. Um, do you want to go ahead and get started? Sure, we okay. can. Uh, sure. Let's first just jump back a little bit. We had a couple concerts this oh, week. The Spizwinks. The Spizwinks. How did it go? It went great. Uh, I wanted to go. I wasn't. I was unable to. Yeah, it was full house, uh, both venues, and uh, the first night the air conditioning was broke, so it was a little uh, treacherous as far as heat was concerned. But everyone managed to get through it. We were all sweaty together, and and took a communal ice bath out of the front <laughs> after <laughs> after the concert. But uh, the Spizwinks were great. Daniel, I actually invited him to perform uh, just kind of as a preview uh, for our upcoming concert. And uh, he did a great job. He played two pieces. And uh, the audience just loved the concert altogether. They're great. Uh, great kids. And they got great voices. They're very funny. And uh, the audience fell in love with them, as I did when I first saw them. So. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad it turned out. Uh, uh, it was, I'm glad that both venues were packed. It was I was awesome. wondering. Yeah. You know, yeah, because I know Brevard packed uh, that that sold out quickly, very quick. Um, and I was wondering about Vera. That's good. That's yeah, good. it was really nice. So uh, we're really happy with it, and uh, and look forward to having them back in the future. I think they like to come down to Florida just because it's Florida, you know, and they're up at Yale, uh, which isn't the most uh, dynamic weather. So I know they love coming down to Florida once a year. So sure, we're it's gonna a treat. we're gonna rope them in every time they come. It's a treat. As was uh, Daniel performing. I thought that I think that's really great that you performed two pieces. Nice. Yeah, I thought it would be a great way just to give the audience a tease. And I mean, he's a world class artist, so it's. Uh, 
they were very thrilled and and just kind of get them ready for uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, Fifth Symphony and uh, Spohr's Concerto for Quartet. Uh, so I think it's going to be really fun. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, so let's let's talk some questions, Bill. Sure. I asked you to come up with some questions. Well, I have some questions. So just you know. uh, my so, questions are. I'm I'm curious. I mean, I, I read your bio. I'm very impressed. You know, um, at the age of six, you started learning uh, how to play the violin, and I mean, just that's incredible. How hard did your parents have to push you, or were you just I cannot wait to play this thing? Uh, the thing is that I asked my parents to play the violin when I was five, and wow. they waited for one year until they gave me the instrument. So, uh, but the thing is that my grandma, she's a pianist and a great musician. And she tried to start teach me at the age of three playing the piano. After half a year, I told her uh, I don't want to practice. And she said, okay, he's just too, too young for it. <laughs> and then at some point, I came to my parents and told them that I want to play the violin. As I remember, I heard somebody performing a Mendelssohn concerto, violin concerto on TV. And I just started to want to play the violin. And since then, I never changed my mind. And I just... Fine love is this instrument. Well, that's pretty incredible, which leads me to another question. I mean, obviously, and, and it's really a rhetorical question, your parents were obviously supportive. Uh, not really. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a shock. It's, it's very... Uh, first of all, my grandma, as a musician, she always... She never wanted me to be a musician because she said it's just too tough to be a musician. It's too difficult. You must be really good or just not do it at all. And uh, after, and she was sure I'm not serious until I won my first competition at the age of eight. And then she started to work with me, but not only work like violin, because she's a pianist, it's different worlds. But as a musician, she, she uh, taught me how to understand music, how to listen to it. And I, I think she made me be a musician. I think she was my first teacher that gave me really good push. That's good. It's not the first I've heard of that. Uh, grandparents are really influential in their uh, grandchildren's lives in a lot of cases, more so than the parents. My, my um, parents start to listen to my concerts like in the past few years. My brother came to my co- uh, my recital first time, I think about two years ago, and uh, the thing he uh, told me, wow, you're not bad <laughs> after the recital. So, you know, now they're much more interested and more more available to come to my concerts. Well, how many brothers and sisters do I you have? have? One, one brother. One brother. One okay. Older. So you're the only musician in the family, other than your yeah. grandmother. Yes. So right. I'm the weirdo of the family. The, the weirdo. <laughs> uh, that's, um, well, let me ask you this. If you could talk a little bit about where you studied. Um, okay. I, at the beginning, I started in the city I'm living in Bechemish with uh, the teacher um, I started at the age of six and continue my studying at, in Jerusalem at music school. It's high school, but it's from age of 13. You can start to... It's a bit different as here, the way the school goes. So uh, from age of 13 till age of 16, I was studying in a, the high school in Jerusalem, music school with the same teacher. And then at the age of 16... I decided to quit the school and continue my university studies. And I finished my uh, school exams just uh, externally, without uh, without school, just these exams. 
And that's how I finished my bachelor in Tel Aviv at age of 20. In Tel Aviv. Yeah, that's uh, some of the information that I, that I was reading. It was very impressive. How many, um, how many violins do you own? Uh, if to say the truth, uh, I don't have my own violin. I have few violins that uh, I got as a present from people because I didn't have a violin. And at the moment, uh, there are two violins that I'm playing on it. And I got it from, as, uh, I can't call it donation, but it's one person who collects instruments and he just uh, gave me to play on his instrument as much as I need. Uh, and I play now on great uh, Carlo Antonio Testola 7033 uh, Italian instrument that I really like. It's uh, the cheapest one from the one uh, he uh, the two ones that he gave me the other one is uh guarneri del jesu uh 1722 it's great violin well. but since it's very expensive violin and i it's very difficult for me to pay the insurance even the insurance cost fifty thousand dollars per year so wow. that's uh, just fifty thousand a year yeah uh, so uh, I'm not really really using it much and not traveling with it. But I like this the, the cheap violin. It's not really cheap. Well, I know that um, we have a couple of clips. Aaron, do you want to go to a clip? Sure, we absolutely can. Uh, we're going to play just a few clips of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Of okay. course, that's coming up next week. So uh, we want to kind of uh, put a little taste in everyone's mouth. Um, and and uh, share a little a bit a little bit of that. So uh, here's our first clip from Tchaikovsky's Fifth. This comes from the second movement, and this is actually the opening of the second movement. Uh, opens up with a beautiful horn solo, horn solo that's going to be very recognizable once you hear it. Um, it's been used in a lot of other works and even some pop music as well. And uh, it's just a beautiful solo that just takes you to another world. It's awesome.
back to your education, um, I know that we kind of touched on where you studied and your age and so on and so forth, but um, who would you consider your mentor? Um, who was your mentor and, and who is your mentor today? Uh, it's so difficult to say because I, I tried to learn from each person I played for and got lessons from. And I, I, every, every person just gave me some little part. And I think every little thing just make you be who you are. And then every detail that I learned, I tried to uh, connect. And it's very difficult for me to tell uh, which, who, who was a person that made me you know, be very excited and learn something special and usual but there are so many I have, as you could see in my bio sure. I have I met so many amazing people well like if that. you could give an example um, I can say that something that really stands out in your mind um, there is one amazing legend violinist called Iver Gitlis that um, he's 92 at, at the moment and it's such amazing to uh, talk with person like this who has so much experience of performance of life experience and when I, I played to him he told me you know as a musician you need uh, as a performer you need three to do three things first thing is um, while you play you have to understand the story behind the uh, piece you play try to um, avoid to show yourself more than the composer that wrote the piece and uh, bring it to the um, audience. This is the first thing. The second thing that might sound very weird, he's, he told me, you know, you need time to have time to have time. It's very complicated to understand it, but the thing is that sometimes when we play, we are not listening to what we got and then we are in a rush and we rush ourselves and then we can't tell the story that we try to, to do in the first part that he told me. And the third thing, it's also quite unusual, as um, he told me, you know, when you look at the mirror, you look, you see yourself much more different than uh, people that look at you from outside. So the same thing when you play. When you play, you have to bring the story with the timings that you need to the audience and then listen how it comes back to you. And then when you can do all these three things, then it makes your performance really good. Well, that um, you actually started talking a little bit about what I was thinking about this morning on my way in. Um, I had an entire list of questions. And of course, you know, you start thinking if you take it seriously, and I do, I take what I do seriously. And I thought, no, some of these questions don't really make sense. Um, so, you know, you kind of cancel some out and you add a few. And I was thinking how much um, of your playing the violin is mechanical as opposed to emotional, and how much do you really have to delve in? to the composer or to the, the, the you know, violinist in this case, um, where you're going to play something, but are you just mimicking or are you really feeling or trying to feel what both the composer and the violinist 
felt when they recorded the piece or when they perform? The thing is that I might say something that many performers might uh, don't like. Uh, not like uh, the thing is that I believe that the composer is much more important than the performer because we are not doing much we just tell a story that the composer composed so uh, it's the same as with book you know when somebody reads a book for audience he just tells the words that was written in a book he doesn't he doesn't make something new so uh, as a performer our idea that's how i believe it uh, our idea is to understand the story behind every note because every note is like a word in uh, in the uh, book so after we understand the story um, then in order to make the public feel the story we have to uh, give some emotions in it so it will not be just different notes that the composer wrote otherwise you can just take uh, any um, computer program that will play all the notes and it will be not the same. Well, I know by definition, a musician is always, as an artist, is always uh, evolving, always changing. Um, but there are different plateaus. You hit a certain plateau at times being a musician. I'm a musician as well, not a classical musician, not a symphonic musician. I'm a guitarist. Um, and I know that as a musician, you hit depending on uh, where you're at in, in your life's experience, you hit certain plateaus and you feel like there's this brick wall you cannot play beyond. And then all of a sudden, something seems to happen and, and, and it's like a new door has opened. Have you had any experiences like that? Um, okay, so about your question, I can say that, of course, uh, everything that happens in our life affects... Uh, also, as it affects the daily uh, life in small things, the same is with the violin and performance. We never play. We can, if you know, if you're a really um, good musician, I think you can't play twice the same way. You can't tell, say, as you never say the same word same way, at, uh, unless you are very tired and you're not listening to yourself but um, the same thing um, that's a good explain. point yeah, so uh, of course many things happens in our lives and it affects you know sometimes you know when we are in love in love and then everything becomes different you know we hear music differently and then uh, we suddenly have different color in the violin, playing sound, because, you know, uh, playing the violin, it's not just moving the fingers. Uh, violin has so much different colors and possibilities, and if you're not showing it, then you're not really a violinist. Well, uh, that is a good point. That can be taken one of two ways, specifically about technique. Um, let's look at that question one more time. Um, when you reach a certain plateau, putting the emotional part aside and life's experiences in general, but specifically technique. What experience have you had where technique changes? You hit a certain plateau and then all of a sudden, wow, this is 
something that I just figured out or something that I've just learned. How often does that happen? And give us an example I if you would. I think it happens all the time because uh, I try to learn all the time and find new things. And, you know, many people know me as a Paganini guy because I play a lot of Paganini. But I was searching a lot of time for different technique uh, things because maybe in order to play Paganini, you have to play wrong. You know, all the school thing, what you uh, get taught that, okay, you have to hold your bow this way and the violin this way. And if you do something different, it's wrong. So in a Paganini, you have to do it wrong in order to make it sound good. And then uh, after, I, for example, staccato, uh, I was reading, I didn't have a good staccato for many years. And then I read a book about uh, um, one violinist that taught, uh, that said any some story about another violinist, and uh, there was a story about staccato. And then they said, you know, you have to be stiff in order to make a staccato. You know, uh, theoretically, while you play the violin, you shouldn't be stiff at all. But then I tried to understand what they said, and I looked at some. A video recording of another violinist and I saw how his hand is stiff and I tried to copy it and after a while I got this staccato and now I can do the staccato that I was reading about. Well, other than Paganini, who would you consider to be your biggest influences? Um, you know, I think Paganini did such an amazing things with the violin and it's funny thing that he, I think he did it because he, he was playing amazing also on guitar. So uh, there's many things. Uh, as I, I also tried to play the uh, guitar when I was a little bit younger. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're familiar with Al Di Miola, but Al Di Miola loves Paganini. Mm-hmm. He's a, he was a big, you know, he, that's where he got a lot of his um, style. That's mm-hmm. his biggest influence. So uh, the thing is that uh, the Paganini playing with the left hand, it's very close to the uh, the guitar holding. It's not very uh, violinistic holding in order to make it everything possible what he did. Because uh, if you play as it's written in uh, books, how playing the violin, you can't play the Paganini. Do you practice every day? course yeah. yeah how many hours would you say you practice it depends i'm trying to practice at my free time since uh, i don't have much free time so it can be from two hours to six seven it also depends how uh, if i have some important concerts or competition or any audition then i ha- just have to practice all possible time uh, the f- day before the flight here uh I had a very busy day and I had only one hour practicing and I felt all the day that I didn't touch the violin at all. I think violin is much different in guitar in that when I practice, um, and I'm just going to interject this, I know this is your interview, um, but when I practice, I like to stand up when I play because it, I hold it differently. Um, violin, I don't think that it really matters whether you're standing or sitting. Is that correct? It's, it matters a lot. It does matter. Okay. I stand corrected. In, in what way? I uh, you know it's so important how you uh, stand, when you stand, how you hold your uh, legs, in which position. So at the moment you sit, it changes everything. The, the weight on your body, it's different. And then... 
of course i know many people that can't play while they sit and they feel so not comfortable to play in uh, chamber music or orchestra and then they have back problems and you know uh, it's very natural to stand while playing violin and it was very i can say that it was not easy for me last time to play this paganini while i was sitting because i felt like everything is disturbing me but uh, it's possible but it, when you uh, when you practice uh, you try to practice in a way you will perform and then if you have uh, chamber music that you sit then you better to practice sitting when you have um, concertos that you play if you practice too much while you sit you will feel not comfortable standing well i know that um we a little while back i think in the in the first part of this interview you had mentioned um practicing uh, or looking at yourself in a mirror how often do you practice while looking in a mirror um I do it quite often because uh, you know and the best thing is when you uh, even you practice at home and then you make a video of yourself then you can judge yourself much better because sometimes you play and you don't feel what you do and uh, mostly I can say also with the faces sometimes you do very stupid faces without knowing it and then when you see it from outside you can judge and say what are you doing stop it and then you work on it as well. Well, I know um, Eric Lee that is not here today, obviously, uh, the president of the board of directors. Um, he and I have been kind of going back and forth talking about a few things. And, and one of the things that I find real interesting is that you have different sections different groups of musicians within a symphony orchestra setting uh, that kind of stick to themselves. The violinists consider themselves a cut above. Is that correct? You're, you're getting a smile on your face. Yeah, there, um, there is kind of story about all the things. Uh, as also, the pian- if you, since we don't have uh, pianists usually in orchestra, the pianist always thinks that they are the, um, the best together with the conductors. Uh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> with the conductors and some um, composers. They are sure that they know everything and uh, do everything the best way. And then comes the violinists that believe that they, it's kind of prima donnas that uh, believe that they can do everything in their way, uh, their way, and it will be also the best way. And then there are many joke, viola jokes that probably you know most of the violinists tell. <laughs> and uh, it's very, you know, I really like the viola jokes, even so I play the viola as well. But you know, it's it's funny sometimes. And then there are the wins and, and others. Give me a, a a little example, if you would, a story about uh, something that sticks out in your mind about you know you guys about the violinists um, kind of keeping to themselves or maybe upsetting some of the other musicians. I think that would be really uh, um, or could be entertaining. Let's put it that way. Uh, the thing I, I don't know the stories, but you know, as I, I usually play the first violin, and it feels very different while you suddenly sit in the second violin. It's probably because of the um, uh, what you have to play as the first violin is, and what you have to play as the second violin, and then it's 
you know, the first violin always plays more notes, higher notes, and feel more soloistic. The second violin feels like, okay, I'm sitting next to you. I, I also play sometimes. I will count a few bars until you finish your solo. So this is a different feeling. And, the, and if we talk about the violist, it's even, <laughs> uh, even less. So there's a little animosity between the violinists sometimes. The second chair thinks they should be the first. I don't know. It depends. Uh, I have, you know, I have friends that feel much better as a second violin than the first violin, and um, I, even in the last um, concert, chamber music concert that we had in December here, uh, I tried to combine that each of us play uh, first violin and second violin as well, but in different groups. And some people, I played with one person when she was playing second violin and then she was playing first violin and I was the second violin. And she said, it's so comfortable to play with you while you're first violin and so not comfortable when you play the second violin. Well, wow. So, you know, it's, it depends. <laughs> well, it depends on if you want to be the person leading the way. It's, you know, it also depends on the way you got used to play. I don't know, I... Somehow I lead also when I'm playing the viola, so <laughs> so it doesn't really work well. It depends if you have somebody who uh, can lead even more than you. I had a story uh, with a great cellist. We played a trio, and he's an amazing cellist and very uh, confident. And while you play with him, you know you can't lead. You just you try to lead, but then you feel how he takes all the power to himself, and then you know I felt like I can't lead here, and I didn't, when we didn't need it. Let me ask you this: um, Do violinists get along with the celloists, or do they kind of keep to themselves? Um, there is very uh, bad joke about cellists, you know, and about all the all the thing of uh, the quartet. Um, I hope nobody will get offended. Uh, there is a joke that tells what is a quartet. So the quartet is, uh, it's also the, goes to the old school of quartet. The, the first uh, violin is a good violinist. Second uh, violin is a bad violinist. Violist is a bad violinist, for, like that was a bad violinist, now he, he become a violist. And the cellist is the one who hates violinists. <laughs> so it's that's gonna good. explain the, the yeah that that's uh, that's a good one. Um, are you addicted to performing? Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe because every time somebody asks me to perform, I always say yes. Even if I have two three concerts in one day, I had one few times three concerts in one day in different cities. I just couldn't say no. <laughs> So what happens when you're on stage, you're performing, and you know you're in your zone, you're playing that specific piece that you just, you love to play. Um, do you feel a certain energy from the audience? Yes, I do. And it's the, it's very funny feeling, because after playing a recital of, let's say, two hours, you feel tired. But then you also feel a good energy, and in some point you just feel, okay, I can do another concert just right now. I have enough power to do it. And it's very unusual feeling, because you're tired, but you're not tired to do it again. You, you have energy, and you feel very happy. 
Aaron, what about you? Do you feel that same energy from the audience? Absolutely. I think uh, that's one of the great things about performing in general is uh, feeding off that energy. Uh, You have the adrenaline on stage that's pumping very hard. And then you also have that adrenaline in the audience. And it's a symbiotic relationship in in performing. And uh, we both feed off of each other. Without an audience, the performance could maybe have a little lackluster element to it. Uh, But with that audience, it creates an energy. The musicians feel that energy and that engagement between audience and performer. uh, There's nothing quite like it. It's it's as any, I guess, any profession. I mean, if you're a pro wrestler, you walk out and the crowd is chanting your name. Of course. You know, you you feel it. You're more energized. And in sports, anything. It's uh, so it's just a really remarkable experience for that performer. And as Daniel said, you can perform two and a half hours, but when you're done, you still feel like you have the energy to do a whole nother concert. And uh, I felt that many times, and it's a really great feeling. And that's funny, because that you said that exact same thing that, that you, Daniel, said yesterday. I was talking with you a little bit, and you said, I could go play another performance immediately afterwards. It's the same thing that he just said. Yeah, and, and um, I wanted to add something about uh, how important the connection between audience and uh, performer. Because I, I know many performers that are playing very well, but somehow they just don't care about the audience. They don't feel any connections to the audience. And then the, when you listen to the performance, it's just not interesting enough. And it sometimes can be or too boring or you know too cold performance and I don't know I really for me it's very important as I, I said as a searching with a mirror that I feel how it comes back to me from the audience how we communicate so you can tell when something's missing something's just not right they're missing their mark or the performance overall. I mean, that would be terrible, but if a performance absolutely missed its mark, mm-hmm. but you're speaking of a specific, you know, performer, a specific artist, yeah. maybe. Personality right. is, a, is a major attribute in, mm-hmm. in performance. It comes out in your musical playing, but it also comes out when you're on stage. And, uh, and there are many cold performers, people who are not comfortable in that setting. They're, they may be brilliant musicians, can play everything to the T, but uh, when it comes to performing, uh, an audience just might find that they just didn't get that extra bit of energy, and it could be like leave the audience cold as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. personality is a very big component to to musicians. Now, does some of it have to do with the venue as far as it being, and maybe you can go into a little bit more about this, Aaron, and you, Daniel, as well, Um, but a venue being considered like a a dead venue, for example, where the sound as you're playing just seems to drop off. It doesn't carry. Does that affect the energy? I think it's not that important. It's this I, is not the case. Yeah, I don't agree. Yeah, I agree with that. It's. I mean, it's a it's a sad situation when it happens for us musicians and for the audience. But the energy can be anywhere. You can be in a you know a bathroom, you know, stall, you know, next to a urinal, and there could be energy. Um, it just doesn't. Uh, it, uh, the the. The venue itself has nothing to do with the energy. It's, that it can help you, you know. Yeah. It can help you to perform Certainly. better and work less. You know, the idea is to give all yourself to make uh, to share the music with the audience. And I think the most important part of it is to share with the audience because 
uh, some just play for themselves, and they, this is what makes the performance not that good. Daniel, how many? Um, how often do you have to replace strings? Well, um, it's very sad for me because they are very expensive, and probably I have to do it every two weeks, sometimes one week. Uh, it depends. As much as you, if you play more, perform more, then you have to change more, and then it's um, it's difficult. And I now I'm working on uh, getting some contract with a string company that I use, so it, m- it might help me. <laughs> That's good. So you're working on that yourself, uh, because as uh, violin is it perform some and get known. In some point, they can talk with their companies. Well, I know yesterday in our conversation, we uh, talked a little bit about the fact that that um, you don't have an agent. Yeah, I don't have an agent. Yeah, you do all of the, the booking, all of the scheduling, all of the arrangements. You, you do everything, the traveling, everything on your own. Yeah, I do it by myself. But, you know, as a concert, I get many in Europe, uh, in the States, and in Israel that I get invitations to perform. And then I just put the dates, and I don't really need an agent for this. Uh, you need agent for uh, getting concerts, uh, but so far I I have enough for myself. Well, you're so well connected. I mean, you're you're well respected. You have such a, a big name for yourself already at your young age. I mean, 21. That's that's uh, that's mind blowing. I mean, that really impresses me as well as everyone else I've Thank you very much. talked you know, with about you. But the thing is that since I have so many friends that are about my age and in the same situation, for me it's just something that it's normal and it's not something very special. I don't make from this big deal. I try to continue and work more and get more successful. But, you know, also when when you have many friends that perform and in the same, uh, I can't say same level. I know many friends that are better than me, and when we connected and we talk, then uh, we can help each other with concerts, and we invite each other, and then we perform together, and then we enjoy the music together, and we hope we can share it the right. feeling with the audience. Yeah, it's absolutely collaborative, and um, and connections are so important. In our world, uh, who we get to know, who we get to uh, who we get to work with, and uh, opportunities start popping up all over the place because of your friends mm-hmm. um, in the situation, and I, I think that's a really great thing about our world and uh, making music. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. Yes. It was a piece that caught your attention early mm-hmm. at an early age. What is it about the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto that just gripped you from the start uh it's i don't know it's it's a very beautiful music and the funniest thing i didn't play it until age of 18 i think yeah so you approached it later in your life yeah and yeah. it's you know it counts as not very difficult concerto so right. usually people who play it can play it at the age of 10 12 14. Yeah, technically it's not yeah. the most challenging yeah but i think there's so much beauty behind this concerto mm-hmm. and there are some performances that are just amazing and 
I, I don't know. It made me feel very good and very happy while I performed this concerto. Yeah. And it's something. And that's a hard thing to describe. What, yeah, what is it? I mean, yeah, you, you happiness can, and joy. Yeah, you can't say yeah. why sometimes, but you just feel uh, satisfied with yourself right. and enjoys. Uh, you know, you feel. Yeah, I did all I need in my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about a little about discovery in music. I mean, uh, when you're younger, you look mm-hmm. at a piece, and then you approach it years later, and you might have a different view. You were talking with that a little about uh, with Bill earlier mm-hmm. about you know uh, discovery. Let's let's talk a little about that in a little more detail. Has your view changed, or uh, what have you noticed as you're growing older? Is there anything that's changing rapidly? Of course, there, there are many mind? things. That change because you know when you're let like give example i played the tchaikovsky concerto uh violin concerto when i was 10 Mm -hmm. and of course there it was it could be cute i don't remember i can't say how it sound i know that the public liked it Mm -hmm. and the thing is that uh, as a kid i like to play very fast so i i remember how when i played once in the radio I saw how the pianist gets red because it's just too fast yeah. the last movement yeah. and after a while you know after performance I perform it almost every year since then and then I could understand that there is no reason to play that fast and you know you, you have to tell say much more than just play fast Right. I mean, sometimes music is more impressive when it's not so fast. I know that's the kind of uh, notion people put out there, like, oh, fast is very impressive. And it it is. It is. It's exciting to see a a musician go full horse at it. But uh, there's something that's satisfying being able to hear every note with clarity. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, what is important, uh, the thing is that uh, when you play... When I play now Tchaikovsky, mm-hmm. I know much more about his life, about uh, the composition, than when I was 10. Right. It also affects a lot. Absolutely. And when you understand the style, it's different. You know, I play... Since, you know, there are many pieces that you you have to perform because they are common. Mm-hmm. And then you perform it for years. And then you start to search more things about the person the person that wrote it uh, you search for the time it was written area it was written you know sometimes you know if you take a, a comp- piece by a composer that was written in some point of his, uh, of his life and then he wrote something else in 20 years later in different country or different city while he was sick or had some different things in his life yeah. then it affects the music a lot and Tchaikovsky he that's one life that was yeah. you know mm-hmm. uh, just a really tough life for him he was very sad uh, but without that sadness we may have never gotten this yeah, unfortunately, incredibly uh, powerful music I, I know mm-hmm. that that sounds harsh but it's these life experiences good and bad really affect our music unfortunately I, I believe that if you, you if your life is too good you can't success
Daniel, let me let me ask you this: Do your hands or or you know fingers and and maybe your forearms ever bother you from playing for an extended period of time? Uh, yeah, of course. I think every musician has it in different way, and even for me, from yesterday concert when I played uh, Paganini. Uh, I have some blue sign under my skin from uh, playing pizzicato. As a, I know I don't know how to explain <laughs> the word. Uh, so you know we also as as um, dancers, you know, they hurt themselves so much, and we just don't know about it. The same with musician, we hurt our hurt ourselves, but we you know just it's part of our lives. You suffer for the art. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's um, you know that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, also, when you when you are traveling around the world, I mean, you're a world class international musician. Um, you have changes in weather, and I know a lot of times, even though you're playing indoors, I'm sure you play outside on occasion. Um, your Fingers become kind of numb when it's so cold. Am I correct? If it's really cold out, yeah, it, it's a fact. But you know, as a professional, you just nobody cares if it's cold or not for you. You just have to do your best and do your job. You know. Do you ever use any uh, special technique? I know some musicians um, that I'm familiar with over the over the years use like hot water bottles, for example. I don't think it really helps. I just, no, there's nothing really to do if it's too cold uh, you know it's just blood con- uh, uh, when blood, blood comes to your fingers and then it becomes warmer uh, so if it doesn't work so there's nothing can help you okay I have one more question yeah. I don't know about Aaron but I have one more uh, you're an international musician um, you play several places, different nationalities uh, that you're performing uh, in front of. Do you find that the different nationalities uh, maybe respond differently to the pieces that you're playing? Somehow, yes. Uh, and I talked yesterday with my friends about this, how it's interesting how different, in same piece you perform in different countries and uh, you see how the public reacts differently. I can't give the reason for it. I don't know why. And but it really happens. I can say it's it's very interesting, but I don't know why it happens. I got a few questions. Myself. I, I'm sure you do. Yeah, and I mean, just stepping back just a little bit about performing in different areas, different uh, places. It's very true. Uh, audiences respond differently. I mean, there's so many variables that play into it. I mean what pieces are you playing, what period of pieces you're playing. And in different countries, different areas, uh, you know, these there's some more education about it and some less education about it. And sometimes you just have an audience that's just, and we all hope for that audience that just loves the music for what it is, the music, and gets joy out of it and just shows their love through their appreciation and applause. Uh, so, you know, it's an interesting, it's very interesting how audiences respond to pieces and and what you can get away with and what you can't in some other venues. So uh, let's talk just a little bit about chamber music. You play a lot of chamber music. Uh, what do you love about chamber? I mean, what is it that 
gives you so much joy in chamber music? Uh, chamber music, it's uh, not only sharing with the public, you share with another musicians right. as uh, music. And then it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a thing, it's like where when you're acting, yeah, and you just tell a monologue or you speak and with somebody and you t- together make something very interesting and do it for the public but you you're together there is communication between you uh, two three four five people and right. then it makes it so interesting and then you have to be much more flexible uh, to continue the ideas that other your friends right uh, yeah it's all about taking the idea of one and, and making it your own yes. and creating this cohesion uh, it's very it's just an incredibly different world i don't want to say than symphonic music making mm-hmm. but uh it's it's really intimate i think it's more uh, difficult and much more uh, stressful mm-hmm. to be uh, to be part of a group because when you play solo you're responsible to, to yourself right and when you're in a group you can destroy all what your people you play with yeah. uh, made and then it's big responsibility. Yeah, I know we have a few minutes left, but I just want to kind of dive into uh, education. You have a lot of students. Uh, when you're over here visiting us on the Space Coast, you give a lot of lessons, and it's a very important part of your life. Uh, can you tell me a little about that side of your life, the education standpoint? Yeah, I think um, there the most important thing uh, about teaching to let the student understand that it's not that difficult as, as they think to do what they do. Uh, many um, teachers tell their students, you know, it's difficult and try to do your best, you know. And I believe there is nothing difficult. Mm-hmm. You just have to do it and know how to do it. Right. And I try to explain the students how to play the violin and in the easiest way as possible. And I try to make the students understand that they are not just playing uh, notes, they play uh, music and story, there is a story behind what they play. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's, you know, it's always dif- different with each student. Sure. Each student interact differently. And some uh, are very musical but have some problems with um, technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And some have no problem with technical stuff but have very uh, finding the soul of the music yeah yeah that's great uh we scratch the surface of chamber music and Mm -hmm. uh education but this kind of leads me to uh your crescendo music festival Mm -hmm. you uh, put together a festival here in central florida and uh can you tell us just a little about the crescendo music festival uh, yeah it's something that i i the idea came to me after a while of a while uh, that I came here and performed here, gave some few master classes, right. then play chamber music, play solo, play different things, and then I could feel that people liked it and interested in it. And at some point, I decided to try bring my friends from around the world. As I said, I have some <laughs> connections. Yeah. And um, they are great musicians. And we came all together and we made a festival that in the morning we uh, taught uh, children's and in the evening we had um, chamber music 
concerts, as we say. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you used some musicians from the Space Coast Symphony. Uh, they were some of the clinicians, and you had these wonderful artists from across the sea and uh, put together this awesome festival. I think it was five days this yeah, last? it was five days, and I hope that the, in the future, coming future, we will make it much right. bigger. I mean, we, we had a meeting, and we talked about uh, your dream, you mm-hmm. know, what, what you really want it to become, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think we're we're on the right path. And next season, we're going to be presenting the Crescendo Music Festival on a much larger scale. Yeah, And I think it's going to be great for the students in the area. It's going to be great for our audience as well. They get to hear a lot of wonderful chamber music, see a lot of great musicians, and get that satisfaction of seeing the kids. And after all, uh, you know, some people ask me, why did you do it? Why is it really helps to your career? Yeah. And I really thought about it is that I will make it not for myself I'm doing it for the children and have no much uh, opportunity to play for musicians from around the world and for the public that are not very uh, familiar with chamber music right here so yeah it's going to be awesome uh, if they want more information they you can check it out at crescendomusicfest.com mm-hmm. and uh, you can find out the schedule that should be coming up in the near future yeah probably uh, we will start to put the information about the next one in september yeah so it's gonna be a really great program the space coast symphony is going to be involved this year with it uh and like i said uh, much larger scale and we're excited to bring it to the space coast uh you can catch daniel on our next concerts uh which is March. March 21st uh, in Vero Beach at uh, 7 p.m. And then March 22nd at the Scott Center at 3 p.m. And uh, it's going to be an awesome program. Bill, any closing uh, words? I just want to say it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you again when you come back. And, um, and, you know, I don't think that you ever want anybody to, to... to uh, leave, no matter how long they've been, you know, if you really respect what they do. And anyway, I had a great time meeting you at the International Palms, and uh, it's really good to see you again. I appreciate the time and the interview. Thank you very much. And I, th- and I think we're going to close uh, this interview with a selection. You're going to be playing here for us in the studio. You're going to play something by Ravel. Yeah, I will play some piece uh, that I play for many, many years. Yeah. And that made me change my understanding of this piece for very very much after listening to many recordings of other piece, uh, people mm-hmm. and you know maybe it will sound not very good but I don't really like most of the recordings I heard yeah. so I try to play as close as possible to the composer and uh, it's just part of the piece and I hope it will you will and like what are we going to be listening to uh, we will listen to uh, Tsigan yeah. written by okay. Ravel so Tsigan it's a gypsy very much gypsy influenced and uh, it's, it's an awesome piece even, even so it's a French music You're right so right. There is all, some people forget about it right so uh, this is the cadenza uh, from Ravel and thank you so much for joining us Daniel thank you very much
Thank you for listening to this special presentation of Maestros On Air. To hear more from guest violinist Daniel Askarov, join us for one of two performances of Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 5. Details are on the website, spacecoastsymphony.org. And then, we'll see you at the show. <laughs>